Radio Mano Papachango. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm your host, Dr. Christopher Ryan, also known as Dr. Fur. Um, this episode is with a very interesting dude. Uh, his given name is Arthur Rosenfeld, um, but his name these days is Monk Yoon Rao. Uh, that's his website, by the way. Monk, M-O-N-K, Yun, Y-U-N, Rao, R-O-U, dot com. Uh, you can find information about his life, his teachings, his learnings, his writings, and all the rest of it at monkyunrao.com. Uh, I met him through Daniele Bolelli, uh, who most of you probably know, podcast podcaster par excellence uh part of the whole uh duncan trussell joe rogan sort of nexus of podcasters there in la and a good buddy of mine and uh, he put me in touch with the monk and said you gotta talk to this guy he's he's an interesting cat and daniele was right about that so i hope you enjoy this conversation with monk yun rao uh he's got a novel coming out uh i don't remember the name of it i'm i'm sorry about that i'm sitting in the woods and i don't have wi-fi so i can't look it up and i don't have it noted anywhere but it's coming out uh, around the time you're hearing this so i hope you'll go to his website and take a look and uh, order a copy if if you're into it. Uh, let's see, what else? Civilized to Death, speaking of books, Civilized to Death is out in paperback. So if you've been waiting to grab a copy, uh, now's your chance. It's out in paperback. It's, I don't know, 14 bucks or 13 bucks or something like that. Um, yeah. And I think it's the kind of book that should probably does better as a paperback than a hardback. I don't know. People like hardbacks because they have collections of books. But I sort of imagine this is the kind of thing that gets beat up and passed around and um, has wine stains and coffee stains on it. So grab grab a paperback or a few of them and uh, pass them around to your friends. I appreciate it. Um, what else can I tell you? This episode is brought to you by absolutely nobody nobody except you maybe if you contribute to the website uh to the podcast through the website that chris ryan.com or tangentially speaking.com even if you're at the minimal level of two dollars a month uh two dollars a month 50 cents a week that's like 50 cents an episode or less uh you get access to everything you get to see the monthly video romas that I record. I'm about to record one on my new iPhone as soon as I finish doing this intro, actually. Uh, you'll see me by the river in a hammock between two trees. Um, hey, and who doesn't want to see that, right? Uh, you also have access to all the ebooks, the tangentially reading ebook, uh, the tangentially talking about sex ebook and the tendentially talking about drugs ebook all of them are excerpts from uh, episodes 
in the archives with various nefarious characters like Joe Rogan, Dennis McKenna, uh, Wade Davis. I'm thinking of the drugs one. Um, uh, Andy Weil, you know, fascinating people. And then the sex one got your various porn stars, your Angela White, your Nina Hartley, your, I don't know exactly who's included in this. Actually, Angela White probably isn't because I think we did it before I spoke with her. Um, but if you want to hear some interesting conversations about sex and or drugs, check out those ebooks. They're free for members of the Chris Club. I know that's a cheesy name, but I don't know what else to call it. Um, if you have an idea, let me know. So, it's driving down the road the other day, something I do a lot, living in the van, and I was listening to a song I've heard a thousand times all along the Watchtower, written by Bob Dylan, performed by Jimi Hendrix. And this line jumped out at me. It's a line I've always loved, but it really jumped out at me. And the line is, let us stop talking falsely now. The hour's getting late. That's kind of how I feel about life. Not that I've been talking falsely until now, but I think we all better stop talking falsely now because the hour is getting late. And I think we all feel it. We all know it. This is what it looks like when the shit hits the fan. That's what you smell. That's what you hear. That's what you see. That's the shit hitting the fan. Uh, as far as this COVID thing goes, I feel like we're in that moment. I think I've probably said this before. But we're in that moment after the lightning flash, but before the thunder. Saw the lightning, waited on the thunder. Waited on the thunder. Bob Seeger. I think night moves. That's where we are. And that thunder's gonna hit hard. I think kids going back to school and that's not going to work they're tiptoeing around it right now trying it here and there trump and his cronies are all saying it's going to happen i don't think it's going to happen i think some kids will go back to school the numbers will of deaths will go way up and the schools will shut right down i think unc chapel hill has already done that um there are going to be structural changes in the economy and the social structure of the United States uh, and other countries um, that are probably unimaginable to us right now. The number of bankruptcies, the number of people being kicked out of their homes because they can't afford to pay the rent, um, either because they can't go to work because their kids aren't going to school or because there is no work to go to anymore because... The J.C. Penney's they worked at closed down. The Sears they worked at closed down. The shoe store closed down. Retail, it's going away. Amazon's going to gobble it all up. Amazon and other online retailers. Um, and that was happening anyway, but it's accelerated so much. There are going to be millions, possibly tens of millions of people newly homeless in the next few months and um, 
the repercussions of that are impossible to imagine for me anyway. So I do feel that we need to stop talking falsely now. And I also feel that we're suffering from something which I'm going to call pre-TSD. It's like post-traumatic stress disorder, but it comes before. It comes when the trauma is anticipated. It's that feeling you get when you see the tornado uh, form and you see it coming toward you. It's the feeling a deer gets when it sees that truck come around the bend. It's the feeling of knowing shit's gonna get real hairy here real soon and there's no way to really prepare for it because we don't know exactly how it's gonna hit we just know that it's gonna hit I guess my point in saying all this is just to encourage you to be gentle with yourself and with each other with the people around you because we're all living with extraordinary levels of stress right now. Um, even those of us who seem to be well-positioned, whose jobs are secure, who are able to work from home, who don't have kids or have got a plan for how to deal with this craziness with schools not working. Um, you can't get away from it. Because, and this is why I've never really understood the prepper movement, you know, the people who are stockpiling their bunker with canned goods and ammo and guns and all that. You're not going to make it on your own. And even if you could just stay in your bunker and, you know, last for four or five years... Why everybody's outside the door, banging on the door, desperate, because they're all starving to death. Is that the world you want to live in? Is that how you want to go? The only way to survive this is the way humans have always survived, which is with each other. And um, I think that what we need to do as we stop talking falsely is start thinking real carefully about the people we love and what we can do to help them and how we can form networks among our friends, how we can form real communities. Because we're going to have to start getting used to taking care of each other on a level that we haven't seen in this country since the Great Depression, which means very few people alive have seen it. And this is not something to be lamented. I honestly believe this is going to be an improvement in our quality of life. Because being part of a group of people who take care of each other and support each other mutually is one of the great joys of human life. It's what we are evolved to do beyond any other skill. And yet, a strong economy provides us the means and the uh, incentive to separate from one another and to stop taking care of each other. 
because the insurance company will do it because you can hire someone to do that because you don't need to. But when you need to, it's like exercise. I don't exercise unless I have to. I feel good after I've exercised, but if, you know, if it's just like do 100 push-ups, nah, fuck that. But if exercise is part of my life, like in Barcelona where you walk everywhere, or if, you know, I live in a place where there's a lot of movement as part of my life, I'm working, I'm building something, I'm trimming trees, I'm, you know, then I feel better. So it's one, I think that, there are so many things in life that are really beneficial for us, but we generally don't do them unless they're integrated into our lives. And I think this sense of community and, and mutual support is part of that. And I think we're moving into a time where we're going to have to take care of each other. We're going to have to, you know, the person who's raising the chickens is going to be sharing those eggs with the person who has the garden with the person who goes hunting with the person who's good at carpentry we have to start taking care of each other in those ways and um yeah i'll talk a lot more about that in the future because that's something that uh that i'm involved in on a practical level you know, i've talked about having bought land and this is the reason to to build this life raft community of people who are taking care of each other and sort of thinking, uh, you know, along the same lines. And, um, yeah, as I think I've said before, once my closest friends have a chance to jump into that, then I'll start talking about it on the podcast. And maybe some of you who are thinking about how you want to handle the next phase of your life will, uh, want to come and check it out as well. So that's, uh, that's exciting. And it's the kind of thing that I don't think most of us would do unless the world fell apart a little bit. Things have to fall apart uh, before you can put them back together in a better way. All right. That's my little rant for the day. I hope uh, some of you might have found it a little interesting. I guess the point is that uh, what feels like a tragedy might actually be an amazing opportunity if we handle it uh, with some grace and skill and kindness. Let's hope we do. All right. Thanks for listening. And uh, a special thank you to those of you who support the podcast through my website. Again, this is a commercial-free episode. Enjoy this conversation with Monk Yun Rao. Thanks. Bye. Oh, here we go. All right. Here I am with... Um, a gentleman by the name of Yun Ro, who is a Taoist monk. Is it Taoist or Taoist? Let's start with the, the real basics there. So the answer is yes. Okay, good. Either way. Huh? <laughs> well, the answer is that uh, pinyin spelling, which is, you know, the Chinese government approved uh, transliteration method, which isn't really so great at all, as many people know, uh, does capture the sound in Chinese better with a D than a T. So T is, is not quite how it really sounds. So I would say use the D. Taoist. Okay, great. And, and you're um, American originally, I can tell by your voice. Uh, you sent me an email with a, a little bit about your background. You grew up in, in New York, is that right? Am I remembering that? I did. I grew up in Manhattan uh, and left the ASAP. It wasn't my cup of tea. 
and uh, began um, uh, sojourning around the world. I lived, uh, like you, many places. Um, How old were you when you left New York? Uh, high school. I graduated high school and I left. Actually, there's a little um, there's a little bump in that trajectory because I did a welcome back Cotter. So after university, I came back to teach in my high school. Oh wow! For a year, and it was an, it was really fun, uh, and I had a great time with it. Um, and, you know, having my former teachers who were not so long before that, my teachers, you know, uh, um, as my colleagues was great, great fun. And in fact, some of them, you know, remain good friends. And that was a very wonderful school in New York City. It was a, a, a fancy private school. And um, uh, I had really great teachers there, including the uh, immortal radio personality, Joe Frank. Mm. Um, who was uh, be- went on to become a radio legend, but at that time was a mysterious fellow who lived on a, in a, by himself in a Park Avenue apartment, spent a lot of time at the piano, was scraggly and counterculture and gruff. Um, I-, I loved him. He taught me creative writing in high school. Mm. Uh, actually, my latest uh, or forthcoming book that comes out in October um, is, is dedicated to him and another writing teacher. So, yeah. And what's that book called? That one is called Mistress Meow, M-I-A-O. Is it uh, fictional or yeah. a memoir? Or what? It's a novel. It's a novel. Uh, I, I have a forthcoming memoir as well called The Monk of Park Avenue. Um, but uh, the, my, my favorite thing to do is to write novels. So I, I write bringing together themes. I, I, you know, some of my reviews and so on have characterized me in interesting ways which I wouldn't have necessarily thought of. Um, uh, I was recently called the Zen Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which is a very overly generous comparison, needless to say, but was very ticklish for my ego. Uh, uh, and and um, what I do is I like to bring the sort of New York literary sensibility that I left a long time ago uh, to my Asian um, métier right. and uh, themes. So, yeah. So can let's flush that out a little bit. You've mentioned Park Avenue a couple of times. Uh, the monk from Park Avenue. I guess you did yeah, you grow so, up on Park Avenue. Yeah. So that that's um, that is a, a big piece of you know why we're uh, on the having this conversation. Um, my dad, growing up, was arguably the most famous heart specialist in the world, and he had as his patients and friends, the people who in those days were talking about the 70s and 80s, I guess, a little bit of the 60s. He had uh, as his patients and friends, the people who ran the world in those days. And by that, I mean captains of industry, politicians, presidents, kings, princes, queens, Hollywood royalty, and on and on. So I had uh, the interesting experience, which I think was both enormously damaging and enormously helpful um, of watching a parade of celebrities and, and power brokers and rulers come through our apartment in those mm. days. And my takeaway, you know, being wired as a seeker, something I believe having listened to your podcast extensively, you well understand, um, 
my takeaway was to juxtapose what I was being told about the world with what I was observing. Hmm. And so what I saw was that, you know, uh, money and power and beauty and influence and celebrity and fame and all the rest, which were the things that we were in our culture supposed to pursue and want to be and have and do and all that, um, didn't appear to yield the results that I would have liked to think they would, uh, maybe that I was told they would. So you weren't impressed with these these titans uh, so, of industry? You know, I, I don't know that I wouldn't say that I would say I wasn't impressed. I would say that because some of the people were fabulous. And, you know, we can we can go into that as a sidebar because there were I had many wonderful experiences and friends and, and, and so on. But what I noticed was that as far as watering the soul, as far as making people happy, as far as giving the kind of meaning and satisfaction uh, to life that I would th have thought as a child, the things that you chased after would bring if you achieved them. Mm -hmm. I did not see that in those people. Did you see it? There in, are a couple of exceptions, of course, but as a rule, yeah. not. Right. Uh, what about your relationship with your parents? Did they, obviously your father was very successful. Um, my father came from uh, uh, devastating poverty and uh, Holocaust survival, uh, survivor family. Mm. Um, and so he was very taken with celebrity. And I think he was quite a smart and charismatic person. And I think um, actually he grew up Canadian. So when you... When you said that you detected, you know, American in me, there's some Canadian there. Um, but uh, actually, if his best friend had not died of testicular cancer when they were both uh, about to enter grad school and finish college, his best friend in college was a um, was a member of the uh, French Canadian aristocracy. He was an he had a French background, but he was a French aristocrat. And the two of them, you know, were busy making plans to become prime minister of Canada and uh, and then you know, defense minister or foreign minister. And, and, you know, I have very little doubt that they would have done so. I think that my father chose to be a doctor because his best friend died young, because his father was sick and because his mother pushed him to be one. Right. And, and my dad used his medical degree. You know, there was a New York Times profile of him years ago that, you know, was titled MD to power. And he became a very, very powerful and influential person himself. But, you know, having come from that background and with the incredible fragility of life and future that living or growing up under Hitler, uh, the shadow of Hitler would have given anybody, especially a Jewish person, mm. um, uh, you know, he, he, he was entranced with money and power and fame and all that. And so, um, you know, he, he, he became a doctor to the rich and famous. But the interesting thing, and I'll talk about my mom in a second because she's probably more relevant to the discussion of Taoist monk. Um, but something of interest that I learned relatively later in my childhood about my father was he had this very, his name was Isidore Rosenfeld. And he was on Fox News every Sunday morning as America's doctor, Sanjay Gupta, patterned his show after my dad. 
Mm. Something that was interesting about him was that uh, one summer I worked in his office, his medical office, to make a few bucks putting away files in a summer job. And I kept coming across these little, uh, these, these paper files, like a manila file. But I kept coming across them with a little orange dot on some of them, like a peel-off thing you see in a garage sale, which has the price of something. And I, and I asked the office manager, I said, what are, what are those uh, orange dots? She said, ask your father. So I go and ask my father, and he's talking to a patient. I say, Dad, what are these orange dots? He says, can't you see I'm busy? <laughs> so uh, he didn't, nobody answered me. And, I, and I, I got curious about this, and I pursued the question. Um, and, and I wouldn't leave the office staff alone. I said, listen, I'm filing these things, and I got this orange dot, and I don't know whether I'm supposed to do something with that orange dot, and I don't want to put them in the wrong place. Somebody please tell me what that is. And finally, one of the office workers took pity on me, a guy that ran the centrifuge for blood. Uh, and he took me aside. I said, listen, uh, you know, your dad has all these rich and powerful patients and, you know, they, they pay for his services. But, you know, much more than half of his medical practice is uh, is regular people. Indeed, many poor people live in the Bronx and in various parts of Manhattan. And they come to see him and, you know, a lot of them don't get a bill. And so that orange dot means don't send a bill. Mm. And so, you know, I, this was a side of things that my dad never discussed because he was this very public person, you know. Um, but it, it, it did plant an interesting seed about service to me, I think, mm. which um, was not something that I think a lot of people knew about him. Anyway, my mom um, was a student of Martin Buber, the philosopher, and she was a philosophy major. She went to Sarah Lawrence and she grew up um, uh, the opposite of my father. There's a little bit of a little bit of a. Um, a class discrepancy in the marriage. Uh, my father mm. married well. Um, yeah. And uh, so she grew up in a, in a wealthy New York banking family. And her father actually was, was also a very famous cardiologist. In fact, her dad was the guy who invented exercise electrocardiography. So every time you get on a treadmill or a bike and uh, take a stress test, you have my grandfather to thank. That was his idea. Um, and, uh, yeah. So anyway, my mom's library was full of uh, of philosophy books, and I, you know, as a as a kid, I I uh, I just hung out in there reading stuff. You know, I mean, I kid, I'm, I mean, nine, ten, eleven, twelve years old, um, and of course, particularly the Asian stuff, which I think you know is inscrutable even to scholars today. And I have friends who are that. Um, I'm not. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't anything I could really understand. Although, I did have some sense, some instinct, some tickle that there was something for me there. Mm -hmm. Just didn't know. Any idea where that tickle came from? It came from the juxtaposition of the questing gene and the things that I was observing that I previously described. I was right. looking for answers. I became obsessed sort of mm -hmm. with looking underneath the surface of the pond, looking for what's really going on, trying to understand more about what makes the world really work and how things go. And uh, I, yeah. I was nine years old and I got a bad report card, fourth grade. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like most of my report cards, it you know it said something about me, you know, being a space cadet or not living up to my potential or gazing out the window or something. And uh, you know, my dad called me in to discuss this, which wasn't a happy occasion. 
And, uh, you know, he sat there behind his big desk and, you know, he had, a, had a, all kinds of things on the wall about his, you know, power and success. And he had all the, all the, the accoutrement of his, of his yeah. trap in his own life. And I was there, you know, as the little boy, you know, huddled on the couch in front of him. And, and uh, I remember that behind him, on, on the shelf behind him was a row of about 50 uh, tobacco pipes. He was a pipe smoker until... Mm. Uh, a few years after that, he had beautiful Meerschaum pipes and Briar pipes. And, and, you know, he leaned across the desk at me and he said, you know, I'm reading your report card. And he was uh, going through the pages, the paper thing. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know. And he said, uh, report card like this, uh, you're not going to be a doctor. <laughs> he said, in fact, you're not even going to be a lawyer. <laughs> in fact, in fact, you're not even going to be a captain of industry like some of the friends I have that you know. Then he looked at me and he said, with a report card like this, you're going to be a doorman. Mm. And we lived in a building, you know, uh, in Manhattan with a doorman. And, you know, in retrospect, I realized that, you know, my perception of that particular fellow was was that he was very happy. But in retrospect, I realized he was happy because he was drunk all the time. His name was Eddie. He was an Irish guy. And, you know, it occurred to me when my father said that, boy, you know, that's not such a bad thing. Eddie seems to have a pretty good life. He's always happy. And uh, he's... He's rushing out to, to, you know, help you out of the taxi when it's raining. And, you know, mm. he, he'll walk the dog in the snow for you and he bring packages and he helps everybody and he seems to enjoy himself. And but, you know, there was a little voice inside me that said, don't say that to your yeah. father. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I didn't. And instead, what I did say was, remember, I was nine. You know, I said, um, I, I'm reading this book called Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. And in that book, that guy who wrote the book, he determines who lives and who dies, who gets the girl, who falls off the horse and breaks their back, uh, who's sick, who's healthy, who's handsome, who's ugly, who's rich, who's poor, who lives, who dies. I mean, that's like being God. I want to do that. And I don't know, you know, I guess I, I hadn't thought this way before that moment. But the pressure of this conversation led me there. And my father's jaw kind of dropped because he hadn't heard anything about me wanting to be a novelist before at nine. And he was so stupefied by my response that I kind of snuck out of the room. And that was that. Um, <laughs> he stunned him. Huh? I did. I stunned him, yeah. Did you have siblings? But, you know, Throughout the, throughout the rest of my years, you know, honestly, there, there wasn't a lot of respect for, for you know, working artists as a, as a career path. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Did you have siblings growing up? Yeah. So I have uh, two brothers and a sister uh, still around. Uh, my sister is uh, married, lives in the Northeast. They all, they're all in the Northeast. And I have a brother who has a luminous career in medicine. And uh, anyway, yeah. Any so doormen? No doormen in the family? <laughs> I'm the only one. Yeah. <laughs> so you you've you made it out of high school. Uh, you went. What did you study in college? I grew up speaking Russian with my grandparents. Uh -huh. um, 
from the old country. You know, their English wasn't so great, and my I, I didn't see really speaking Yiddish with them as a as a thing to do. So for whatever reason, you know, when I was a kid, I I started speaking Russian with them, and I took Russian in in grade school and high school. They actually offered it back then, and so I went on to. Uh, it became increasingly interesting to me to read. And, you know, I've, I've read, you know, some of the things you have said about literature and listened to, you know, your what makes a great book thing. So, you know, I, I thought a lot of, that was one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. I, I felt um, I felt that to read the Russian classics in the original would be would be a thing to do. Oh, yeah. And and uh, and I, I didn't feel like I could do that without a higher level of language skill and also without some guidance. Mm. So uh, I, I became a Russian studies literature major. Um, of course, I suppose, you know, with 2020 hindsight, I would have rather studied Chinese because, yeah. you know, uh, well, nobody saw that coming, right? Nobody saw that coming. I, I didn't see it coming. Although, although this does take me back, you know, I, we have to hopscotch a little bit to understand this. But, you know, before I got to high school, there was, a, you know, that was the dawn of Bruce Lee and, and all that. And, mm. and I was a I was an asthmatic, fat and uh, out of shape kid uh, who was mugged routinely in New York. Every couple of weeks, I'd get my books taken or my allowance, which, you know, 25 cents or something taken away. And I would be chased by gangs in the subways going to school. I mean, it was New York was rough then. And, you know, I was relative to those kids, a little rich kid and, and you know, all that. So when Bruce Lee, you know, the sort of the empowering idol of, of you know, physical competence and in an indomitable character and all that came on the screen i you know i went oh my god right and, and around about the same time maybe even a little earlier but around about the same time david carradine was doing his kung fu tv show right? oh yeah yeah and and so you know i would sit, i would sit there uh on on, uh, on the floor watching this tv in my parents house as a little kid and i would watch this you know, incredible. I mean, what what was great about the show was a combination of the fact that although he sh Bruce Lee should have gotten the part, it should have been an Asian person. There's all kinds of politics around that. I, that's a different subject. But Carradine did manage to convey the equanimity mm -hmm. that deep practice brings, even though his martial arts were execrable. Actually, I'll tell you something funny about Carradine in a minute. Well, not funny, but touching. Um, but the flashbacks to the Shaolin Temple, yeah, where you know you got to see Key Luke playing Master Po with his white eyes, and you know, so here's a guy walking around and he can hear a cricket break wind at a hundred paces and kick ass all day long, but he can't see you know the nose in front of his face, and yet he had this fantastic equanimous affect and. And he just was an unflappable dude. And I remember thinking as a boy, you know, I, I wasn't thinking, boy, I want to be a monk back then, you know, not, not when I was 14 or 12 or whatever. But I was thinking that's a really interesting way to live. And all of your comments, many of which I have heard about, you know, the fundamental mistakes 
in human uh, history are going away from the Taoist term free and easy wandering to agriculture and now in my view to the digital revolution another gigantic error in my opinion um you know the idea that we're going to repair all the damage we've done with more of the same poison that you know we're going to we're going to cure ourselves of the poison by drinking more poison this this is not an idea that compels me as it apparently doesn't compel you so you know i guess on some level absent all that experience education sophistication and these ideas anything was just a little boy looking at that there was something in me that resonated with that yeah with that you know monk peaceful you know bucolic uh, pastoral life, uh, the scenes of, of the, the beauty of, of, of ancient China, simply some movie set somewhere. I don't know where it was done. But anyway, uh, you know, so, so now when I, when I say that I wish I'd you know, studied Chinese instead of Russian, it wasn't only the language. You know, I had to play a lot of catch up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's funny. That, that show is important to me as well. I guess you and I are roughly the same age. You're in your 50s, I take it, somewhere. I'm a bit older than you are, actually. Yeah. Um, I used to come home. I, I had uh, Kung Fu classes because of that show. And uh, I would come home Thursday evenings and, uh, you know, get out of my gi, take a shower and sit down in front of the TV and watch that show. I think it was on from 10 to 11 p.m. in western Pennsylvania. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I what I remember about uh, that monk in addition to the equanimity and the extraordinary competence, um, you know, in spite of his blindness, it was that the humor that he was so quick to laugh. And I thought that was a really smart move by the writers of that show to not make him some sort of, a, you know, a, a serious spiritual teacher but like that in that wisdom is a lot of levity and lightness. I thought so that I love that point, actually. And I can't think that I've made that point. Um, I, I actually want to explore that with you for a minute. But before we do, I just want to tell you something about Carradine that I think you'll find amusing. Um, so uh, a few years ago, I won some Hollywood award and it was a black tie thing. And, you know. And I went to this dinner and I received the award and the award was given to me. You know, the presenter of the award was was for action on film and television and so on. And the award uh, was given to me by uh, Bruce Lee's goddaughter, Diana Lee in Asanto. She was the presenter, which was very nice. So when I when I received it, you know, I spoke for a few minutes and I said, you know, at first I paid obeisance to Bruce Lee and thanked Diana for giving me the award and being there for that. And And then I said, but, you know, like, Everybody always talks about Bruce Lee and thanks him, and there's a lot of reason for that. But I also just, since I'm up on the stage in this tradition of television, I want to mention, you know, David Carradine. I said, you know, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a martial artist. He was an actor playing a martial artist. And, um, and to those of us who have devoted, you know, our lives to martial arts, he wasn't a very compelling or convincing in that regard, but he was enormously convincing in a more important way. And I, I said some of the things that we've just been talking about. Anyway, I, I said how much he meant to me and how much that show meant to me. And and and, uh, and I went and sat down back at my table. And this, a few minutes later, this lady walks up and she uh, she says, uh, congratulations on the award. I said, thank you. She said, uh, 
I really, really liked what you said about Carradine. I said, well, I meant it. I said, in fact, I wrote his obit for some newspaper. Now I can't remember if it was the Huffington Post or the Florida Sun Sentinel or something years ago when he died. And when I mentioned his death, because as you may know, he died in, in somewhat sordid circumstances, um, you know, she, she paled and said, well, you know, what did you say? And, and I said, uh, you know, I, I didn't really reference any of that. First of all, I, I don't have any personal judgment about what he was doing or how he died. In fact, there's a part of me that thinks good on you. Um, not, not a bad way to go in your 70s, you know, having a high time and all. But I, I didn't write any of that in the obit. I, I said, I, I didn't say anything about that. I just thanked him for a quite shank you know. And when I said that, I got, I even right now, I get a little choked up thinking about it. And, and you know, she burst into tears. Hmm. She said, thank you so much. He was my father. Hmm. So, you know, it was his daughter uh, who, who was... Um, come up to thank me and it was a very it was a very interesting moment so anyway the the humor thing you know uh i spent a little bit i have friends in the zen community here in the u.s and what i'm about to say will not make me more of them let's say um so i'll tread lightly but i i have noticed that there is quite a correlation between so you know, among Buddhist devotees, and again, I, I'm a Taoist monk, not a Buddhist monk, so this is not my area of expertise, which is the reason I won't expound on this uh, past a small observation. Um, I've noticed that, you know, there, there's the followers of, of, of the Tibetan Buddhism, and they, without getting technical about this, different strains of Buddhism believe different, different things. Um, but I've noticed that the people who follow Tibetan Buddhism, you know, have a very positive life outlook and are, are, you know, followers of the Dalai Lama are generally, I've twice intersected with his holiness and in, in receiving book awards and so on. Um, I, I find um, them to be generally interesting and, and, and people that I like. Zen people, although I have many friends in that community, I, I find often to be very serious and sometimes very depressed. Um, and, and I've just noticed that there is a heaviness, and I don't want to say this, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush or make this too cutting a comment. It's just a light observation that there tends to be a little bit of difference. Maybe it's, you know, which branch of Buddhism appeals. Maybe it's selected by the people right. who are of a personality are more drawn to one than the other, whatever, whatever the reason. Yet, you know, as I'm sure you know, Zen writings, Zen patriarchs, and Zen monks that I have met traveling in Japan were anything but morose. Yeah. Anything but depressed. I mean, they're some of the most lighthearted, fun, hilarious people I've ever met. Yeah. So, you know, why the American branch sort of lost that element, I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm not equipped to say. Uh, but but yeah. we don't, we, Taoism, we don't have that problem. You know, Taoism is, is funny. Is it does does it attract a a lighter sort of mentality? Do you think? I don't know if you know. I, I guess I'm probably too close. Um, it's like asking me to describe to you the topography of the back of my bald head. Mm -hmm. When you ask me that question, I'm way too close to you and looking the wrong direction to answer it well. Um, I will say that my own, I have two Taoist masters in two different lineages and slash traditions, and they are both 
you know, they're both brilliant. One in particular is is a, like a real genius of high order, and he was in fact he is in fact the result of kind of Chinese eugenics program, you know, of of the of the Cultural Revolution era, bringing um, you know genius people together and encouraging them to procreate. So they they did a good job because they got what they were after, and he's a genius in many levels. He's kind of a Leonardo in his own right, an engineer and a historian and a spectacular, unparalleled martial artist and many other things. But, you know, he and I are, are spend a lot of time hysterical laughing about things. I mean, we, we are very, very serious in our training in our, and the subjects that we deal with are, are generally quite heavy and serious. But the flavor of it is, you know, there's, there's a tremendous amount of laughing. And my other master, you know, is a is a party animal. <laughs> you know, he, he, he's a guy. He's always got something in his hand. He's smoking. He's drinking. He's he's out there. He's partying. He's eating. He's, he's you know he's he, there's there's no moroseness there. That's my lineage. I'm actually in a <clears throat> in a town where uh, Chogyam Trungpa. Uh, had, had a lot of influence. I think that was his lineage. I, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I was um, uh, in, when I got out of college, I traveled a lot. You may have heard some of this. I was in India and Nepal and, and Southeast Asia for a couple of years. And um, I went to visit my best friend who was living in Paris at the time, uh, who had some things in common with you, in fact, uh, Holocaust survivor family, spoke Russian with his grandparents, um, German with his uh, mother, and uh, Ukrainian with his, I mean, he grew up speaking five languages, you know. Um, anyway, he is a, a very uh, careful person. You know, we've talked about Kung Fu, another show that w was somewhat influential for me was Star Trek. And in our friendship, he was Spock and I was Kirk, right? Like I was, I would say the stupid thing off the cuff and make a, but landed on my feet generally. And he would observe me and just sort of say, ah, oh, very interesting, fascinating captain, you know? <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, you know, he's a, he's a religious guy, a Russian Orthodox actually is his uh, religion that he grew up in and he stayed in, whereas I'm, you know, pagan at best. Um, but I came back from this trip and we we're hanging out in Paris and I was telling him about all these things I'd been doing in Asia and the, you know, drugs I had taken and the women I'd hooked up with and the, you know, different experiences I'd had. And, and he said, you know, Chris, I think I finally figured you out. I said, well, what's that? He said, you're an anti-monk. He said, you're like a monk. You're seeking enlightenment. You're seeking knowledge. But whereas a monk does it through renunciation uh, from the pleasures of the flesh and so on, you do it by immersing yourself in these things. I thought, man, that's he's right. And this is before I knew about this Tibetan lineage that you talk about. And by the way, shout out to our mutual friend, Daniele Bolelli. Uh, oh, indeed. Who, uh, put us in touch, but also has uh, written quite a bit about this strain in Eastern religion. And, and wonderfully so, I might add. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I relate to that, the, the idea that, what is it that, um, 
uh, uh, William Blake said, the, the palace of wisdom lies at the end of the road of excess. So, you know, in one of our brief conversations or emails back and forth, you know, I said to you that one of the things that I was fascinated by with your presentations was that you had arrived at so many of the same conclusions that I did, but without the uh, overarching framework. And, you know, so two, two things that I think are significant about that. One is that um, you would not be seen to be an anti-monk in the Taoist tradition, because the Taoist tr tradition, which has many lineages within it, does, not all of them are renunciates at all. Um, and in fact, sex in particular, um, and also likely hallucinogens, were a part of uh, Taoist practice from a very early point. Mm. The other thing I should say is that, you know, I came to the monk thing relatively late uh, in my career, uh, you know, as far as the trajectory, not, not late from the Chinese longevity timeline point of view, but from an American model late, you know, um, a few years shy of when, when many people retire, I was becoming ordained as a monk. So, so that's, you know, that's a separate question. But I think, you know, about the framework, there was something else, but I've lost it now. About the framework um, of whether or not it's better or even very different, let's say, instead of saying better, let's say whether it's very different to have the framework or not. I think the only real difference, if you are the kind of person that I believe uh, you and I are similar enough to say we are, and if you find, as I was fortunate enough to be able to, the right niche within the framework, because there are parts of the framework that would not work for me. So, you know, some people, you know, ask me, how come you didn't become a rabbi? Right, because, you know, this sort of impulse to, the spiritual impulse combined with, you know, writing and teaching and on, um, you know, would fit perfectly with a rabbi. And, and I think the answer to that is, is really straightforward. Um, it, it's a failure of the community of my youth. Mm. So, you know, the ethos of being Jewish in the post-Holocaust uh, period, the darkness and suffering, you know, that was evident in my grandparents' lives and in their, you know, in, in the way they presented themselves, the way they saw the world, and the association with religion, with Judaism, mm. was so negative and dark that I was deterred from that path. But the impulse of seeker, you know, was too powerful and omnipresent in me to be completely deterred altogether. So it's just like, you know, water, you know, getting more and more pressure behind it until it found the right path, you know? Yeah. That makes sense to me. Do you, can you outline, and, and maybe this is an impossible request here, but is there um, a, a simple, easy way to describe what Taoism is? I, every time yeah, I've that, read about it, it's so simple, I can't wrap my head around it. So this brings me back to something that I, when I said I lost, there was something else I lost it, I just found it again because of what you asked. So we were talking about TV shows, and you mentioned Star Trek. And, you know, I, I, has, I, I venture to say that um, we could run a pretty heady Star Trek, uh, who is the more, who is the bigger Trekkie freak, 
uh, contest, and we, we would we would be well matched. I, I am a, a tremendous devotee of all of them. Of course, I love Picard the most, but you know all of them. Uh, see, I never. I'm a classicist. I, yeah, I never I love them all. Never did the Next Generation or any of that. Uh, so, well, that's good. I mean, that's that's interesting. I, I love I love the original, but I love all of the offshoots. And I think the reason that I love them so much is that I love that world that you know Roddenberry created. And and I love the idea of inquiry as adventure, which was mm. the propulsive mm. theme of that show, which distinguishes it, by the way, from Star Wars. Right. So, you know, the word Trek and the word Wars pretty much say what you need to know about that comparison. Right. Yeah. Good point. Um, I, I really loved uh I loved uh, Patrick Stewart in in the role of Picard. I honestly feel like um, it, it literally brought tears to my eyes to hear that they were bringing him back for this uh, show about Picard. And, and I watched it like, you know, I, I devoured it in one sitting. But um, I think that Taoism is actually much better represented by Star Wars. So in answer to your question, if listeners know the Star Wars universe and they understand the world that uh, George Lucas put together, they have only to know that he based that world on the historical interaction between the Confucianists and the Taoists in Chinese history. So in the familiar to people, I think now, uh, Star Wars universe, the empire with all of its rules and regulations was represented the Confucianists. That is structure, hierarchy, rules, technology, living in very prescribed social contexts and the rebels in the forest with the Ewoks, with their robes and their lightsabers, these were the Taoists. Mm. So this nature worship, this individuality, this simplicity, this sense of community, organically in all senses of that word, absent the regimented hierarchies of Confucianism slash the empire is the easiest way for American people these days to connect with what Taoism is. Taoism is uh, is the Jedi's man. You know, when you're when you were outlining that, it fell into hunter gatherer farmer category for me. Thank you. Perfect. Exactly. <laughs> yes. You know, na nature Smart. worship. <laughs> Spontaneity, flexibility, community exactly. versus hierarchy, order, yes. all that. The farmer, this is my land, don't come here. I'm doing these four things here. This right. is going to feed my family. These are the rules. Don't come here. Don't transgress. You do your thing. I'll do my thing. All of that, which I think I, I heard you once say is represents sort of Democrats and Republicans and that kind of, you know, all, all of that is, is you're exactly right. Hmm. This is point of view you're exactly right so are what's the role of women within Taoism? is there a, a place so there are Taoist nuns uh -huh. like there are Buddhist nuns um, and uh, there 
actually, you know, Confucianism, I have, I, I should make clear because, you know, things are never as black and white as we make them. And in fact, I, I want to talk for a second about the the Tai Chi symbol, the yin yang symbol in a second, but because it, it explains that really well. But um, in general, I think the rigid uh, roles in Confucianism were historically not kind to women. So I think that any, any Confucianist would agree that Confucianism's strong suit was not the role of women in the world. And, you know, there are people working on that stuff. Um, in Taoism, there isn't such a, there's not that kind of division or hierarchy. Um, you know, there's, there really, I don't have, you know, I'm trying to think of like an example of, well, look how much better women, but, but I think actually that it, that, that prejudice just doesn't exist. I mean, if you're worshiping nature and you see the necessity of both the yin and the yang, and you see the male and the female as a divine and harmonious interplay between opposing forces and the primary characteristic of that which is portrayed so beautifully by the yin yang symbol is both the fact that one is turning into the other so these two fish are interlocking black and white you know you see it on the back of every surfer's pickup truck um, but also that also that the white eye has, uh, the white fish has a black eye, the black fish has a white eye and all that. And then there's something else which people don't talk about enough, in my view, and that is that the whole thing is a circle. In other words, those interlocking fish not only speak to their interaction and relationship to each other, and obviously everything I'm saying, you know, pertains to your question about men and women, but also that together those two interlocking things make this dynamic circling thing. So the yin yang symbol is not a photograph. It's a movie. Mm. It's, it's a constantly changing, evolving, dynamic thing. And so that, um, again, speaks to what you said about the hunter gatherer and about, you know, nature and spontaneity and, and not forcing. And of course, you know, all of these wonderful realizations and ideas, which you expand often in your show and which I tried to do in my writing and teaching as well, you know, came to me because my, I have a brain like a squirrel, you know, I'm not very good at languages and I'm not too smart. So it takes me a long time to figure stuff out. But these things came to me, you know, late, late uh, in, in the game comparatively. And, and of course, I'm as I write my books and stuff, you know, I engage all these themes and uh, I know that uh, you find them delicious. Um, and, and so do I, and I just put them into, you know, I put them into stories, into fiction. And I, you know, I sometimes find myself cackling at this stuff, I'm cackling with glee. So, you know, when a guy cackles with glee at his own work, uh, he's either a deluded egomaniac or he's very fortunate. Or both. Or both. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or both. When you said you have a mind like a squirrel, I, I thought you were referring to like uh, gathering things and saving them, you know? No, I was referring to just being very small. <laughs> saving them for later. You're nuts. <laughs> Uh, before we yeah. get too far uh, afield, I wanted to circle back, if you're willing, and just ask you about this Hollywood award that you won for action. And oh. what are you a stuntman, or what? What's the connection there? So uh, I had, um, yeah, it's a, 
I, I only brought that up to talk about Carity. Um, if, you, if you drop a hanky while you walk by, yeah, someone's yeah. going to pick it up. So I, I mean, okay, so the best answer for that is that I, I had a television show which was quite successful. Um, and I, I have spent some time. Okay, so there's two, there's two different things. One is that I was, uh, you know, I had some small success as a screenwriter at one point in my career and, you know, adapting my books to film and so on. And I worked with some luminary people and uh, uh, I'm not into the Hollywood name dropping thing. So let's just leave it there. But oh, I did work. Come on. You're well, a I'll share I'll share one good one with you. Okay. But it's not really about this award. Right? But but the reason I got the award was that I had a TV show, uh, which was about Tai Chi, and it was on national public television. Mm. But, it, you know, it brought in a couple hundred million viewers. So it was really well received for that kind of show, you know. Um, and so it was anyway. So that that award was connected in some ways to that thing, but also to the fact that I just I'm in the media with these ideas more than some people. Um so there, there was, um, since you wanted a Hollywood story, I'll, I'll give you a funny one. Um, uh, Saturday mornings are generally when I teach my, my group Tai Chi class, not during this pandemic. Uh, actually, I am doing it during the pandemic, but I'm doing it like we're doing this on the, on the Zoom thing, right? Um, but uh, uh, the phone rang as I was about to leave the house. And my dad, whom I've talked a little bit about, had a very good sense of humor. He was a very funny guy. And he also was very good at accents. And he loved to play practical jokes. And he was sort of notorious for this kind of stuff. So my phone rings on a Saturday morning. And uh, you know, this was before I became a monk. And I was going by my American name, Arthur Rosenfeld. And so this, uh, I pick up the phone. And there's a very heavy accent. And it says, Arthur Rosenfeld? And I immediately, I knew it was my dad yanking me, you know. Oh, really? <laughs> he was jerking. I, I was sure it was my dad. He, I said, yes. And he said, the Arthur Rosenfeld who wrote the novel A Cure for Gravity. And this was a book that I wrote in the year 2000, which got some acclaim and it was, got some award stuff. And anyway, but it was a good novel and very cinematic. And um uh, so I said, yes, and I'm still thinking it's my dad jerking me, but there's some little piece of me that's a little hesitant because it's not an accent that I've heard him do before. It's something different. It's something slightly different. So he says, well, this is Milos Forman calling. <laughs> and, and I've, I've read your book. You write like an angel. And as soon as he said it was a Milish Foreman, I was about to say, and this is Mickey Mouse answering. But something shut me up. Right? Something stopped me. And I got this frisson all over my body. And I thought, Jesus, I think this actually is Milish Foreman calling me. <laughs> and, and, and I'm about to really screw up. Um, and, and I'm like, really screw up? And, and I'm about to say, you know, to... to, to say Mickey Mouse and be an idiot. And, and you know, the, the winningest, uh, Oscar winningest, whatever, the fantastic director. And I'm thinking about, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest and Amadeus and all that. So, so um, you know, it dawns on me and I, my, my hair stands on end, what little of it there is. And I, and I say, to, I say, does, does this mean you, 
you want to make a mick, mick, you want to make a, a movie out of my book. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I had been in Hollywood for years before that and left. Uh, it wasn't my cup of tea, but I was very pleased to get Foreman's call because he was one of the ones I really liked a lot. Wow. He said, well, he said you know, I'm, I'm, about to, I'm about to leave for Europe for six weeks. I'm going to take your book with me in my heart. <laughs> if it grows and flowers, the answer is yes. And if it turns black and dies, the answer is no. Wow. So, you know, I said, okay, so what, what should we do? He said, I'll call you when I get back uh, and then we'll talk. And so he did. And he invited me to come to his home in Connecticut and spend some time with him. So I was living in Florida then and I flew up and I spent, um, I really had a fantastic time with him. And we drove around in his Porsche talking about literature and film and mm. writing. Uh, you know, it was it was really probably I had some good and interesting things happen in Hollywood, but that was probably my favorite, if not the best. And and in the end, he decided that he wanted to do Goya's Ghosts instead. He had a book he wanted to write about a movie he wanted to make about Goya. So, you know, he didn't make my mind that that book was optioned a few other times by famous people also. But uh, which book was yet. that? It's called a cure for gravity. It's a, it's a it's kind of a picaresque thing about two guys uh, who are crossing the U.S. on motorcycles. One has his girlfriend and a and a bag of cash on the back of the bike, having just robbed a bank, and the other one is uh, going uh, to change his life um, completely, and he's just dropping out of his life and moving from east to west coast and starting all over again. And I don't want to ruin the story by saying why he's going, where he's going, but. Uh, the two of them intersect in the Oklahoma panhandle when a tornado whips along the road that they're on and pulls them both aloft into its funnel and they meet in the air um, with their motorcycles spinning, uh, which is why it's called a cure for gravity. Mm. Anyway, it's, um, it, was a, it was a pretty good book, I guess. People really liked that book. Won a bunch of prizes and things. How um, many novels have you published? Uh, <laughs> enough that you have to think about I don't, I don't i don't know i think i'm thinking that i'm on 21 or something but but i think that a few of those were there's one book that sort of counted in my oeuvre which i didn't actually write but it was a book that was published about a conversation like this with me out of mm. which someone made a small book and another uh, couple were nonfiction works that i did i wrote a book about chronic pain mm. um which was a very big seller in its in its day. It's a few years old now, um, and uh, I wrote uh, most recently. Um, I've just actually at the time that we're having this talk, I've, I'm only two or three weeks past the release date of a brand new one, which is called Turtle Planet. Um, and and actually, I wouldn't mind uh, if you'll indulge me talking about that for a second, please. Uh, so there's this um, there's this tradition in in pretty much all religions, which goes basically like this: some cork popper, some guy who pops up the cork off the top of his head and opens his his mind to you know greater things, 
has visions or experiences, hears voices in his head, uh, has an experience of some kind that seems tangible and material, but is otherworldly and supernatural somehow. And then they, that person wants to, is desperate to convey either the message that they received to the rest of the world because they feel it's of great importance or their own realizations that came to them as a result of the experience. And so that's the basis for, you know, Moses and the burning bush and, 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 and Jesus and uh, Muhammad. And, and, you know, people hear thing, they hear these things, they have these ideas. And, and of course, um, in the Taoist tradition, we actually have a very rich tapestry of such experiences slash writings. So when someone has an awakening of some kind, they they hear the voice of Lao Tzu in their head, Lord Lao, who became, you know, a, a probably fictional character who became deified, may, may have been a real guy, I don't know. Um, uh, but, you know, they have, Taoism has like Catholicism, like Christianity, they, they canonize people. So that when, when they're canonized in Taoism, they, they become immortals, so-called immortals. Some of these are people from actual history, and some of them are fictional characters, and some of them are, I don't know what they are. But, you know, these immortals have certain powers. So you could think of them as demigods, right? They're, they're not like an all-powerful, omniscient, monotheistic entity, but they are, um, they are higher and more powerful than human beings, and they transcend space and time, and they talk to us and so on. Anyway, I, I got the idea you know, that I have a great passion for turtles. And ever since I was a little boy, I, I told you that I, I wanted to sort of look beneath the surface of the pond and see what was under it, making the world work. And when I was nine years old, I was paddling in a river in Connecticut and I see this little turtle going by. And I'm being a little boy, I'm trying to catch him with my paddle, you know, and I grab him, grab him, you know, the acquisitional thing that the boys and men have. And and so I, I I'm stunned as I pursue him it suddenly comes to me, you know, the, the little fucker. He can do something I can't do. He can stick his head out of the water and look at me in the, in the canoe and see the world and everything. And then he can go down underneath in a place to which I do not have access and see the world underneath. And I had this epiphany about turtles. And ever since then, you know, more than half a century later, I, I'm still fascinated by turtles. So... I took this, this fascination with turtles and I melded it with this idea of what in Taoism is called spirit writing, which is the lessons that you learn from, a, from an enlightened being who visits you. And so I wrote this book, which is part science, part natural history, and part fable, in which I have 16 or 18, can't remember now, um, meditative experiences in which I'm visited by turtles and immortals in the form of turtles and they take me places and show me things so in one case i'm in a i'm in a bathroom in the airport in 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 uh Koh Samui. and, and mm. i know in thailand so you've probably been in that airport maybe even in that men's room and they have they have, um, have aquaria in there so as you're urinating you're looking at a tank full of fish right in front of you you know sort of give you something to look at while you're getting comfortable and uh so in one of my in one of my meditation my meditative journeys, you know, uh, I'm, I'm I'm urinating in that in that bathroom, and there's a turtle, and he starts talking to me. He says, "Hey, you know, how about get me out of here? You know, can you help me out? <laughs> they took me out of the out of the pond. They stuck me in here. I got to stand here and watch guys pee all day, you know." So, 
and, and you know, so I, I end up going in, in this, you know, sort of fable-esque fantasy. I go into this fantastic world where I try to get him out of the thing, and I end up in the in the aquarium with him, and I, I meet, you know, Buddha there, and so on. Um, and, and another one, I'm in Afghanistan, and I, I find myself, you know, I, I'm in my meditation, and I find myself, boom, finger snap. I'm in Afghanistan. I'm looking around, and I'm in some valley, and you know, F-16s are flying through, and and there's tanks and stuff, and and I look up and I see the uh, the remnants of the giant Buddhas that the Taliban destroyed uh, there, and and I hear a little voice, you know, and I look down, and there's a little turtle there, under a rock. It says, "Hey, you know, welcome to Afghanistan." And it turns out that this turtle is the turtle that the Soviets put into space. And I put him in a capsule and I sent him around the far side of the moon. And so he and I, against the backdrop of this, you know, religious war and all this violence and technology, have this conversation about, you know, what religion has led men to and to do to the world and to turtles and all that. Anyway, so this book, Turtle Planet, just came out and people are liking it mm. so far. We'll see. Cool. That's great. That's fantastic. You re- you were talking about turtles. You remind me uh, of a a very important lesson I learned from a reptile once. It wasn't a, a turtle. It was a frog. Um, and if I ever write a book like that, which is which is a great idea to write a book about. I mean, in your case, it's the turtle character is, is very important. But it could be also just interesting to write a book about lessons learned from wild animals. I think there's actually a rich tradition of that. Oh, I'll yeah. bet there is. And sure. Is, and this is part of that tradition. I mean, Kung Fu, which I studied for a while, is based on the right, movements of, of yeah. the crane and, you know, the, the snake. Um, but I, I was um, I was with a friend in uh, New York. I was in a park north of the city somewhere. I forget somewhere in Westchester. And we had taken some LSD and uh, we were um, walking along the stream. It was the sun had gone down. And uh, I had a flashlight. It was one of those flashlights where you can sort of focus the beam, you know, and so you could spread it out to see a lot or focus it in and it would go further. And uh, there were little frogs, uh, a little frog in the stream. And, you know, we heard it plop in the water when we walked by and I shone the flashlight and there it was. And I saw where it came up and... uh, And so my friend said, I'm going to try to catch that frog. So he went around to the other side of the stream and he came up very close behind it. And just as he went to grab it, the frog jumped and I followed it with the beam of the flashlight and saw where it came up. So my friend went over there and again, he tried to get it. And he's like, oh, man, this is impossible. You try it. So he held the light and I went over and just as I was. I've always sort of prided myself on having fast hands, you know, from martial arts or boxing or something. Like it's one of my only physical attributes that I that I have any reason to be proud of. And I thought, I'm going to get this frog, right? But just as I was about to grab it, I thought I might hurt it. Like I don't want to hurt the frog. This is crazy. And remember, like we're tripping on LSD at this point. Right. And so some some voice in my head told me, don't don't hurt the frog. I just put my hand down in front of it and the frog stepped up onto my hand and it just, I just held it there in my hand and it sat there and my friend came over with the light and we looked at it and it turned it around and it was sort of translucent and you could see its heart beating. And then I put my hand back to the water and it stepped off my hand and swam away. And I thought like that is a metaphor for so many things in life. 
So first of all, I mean, I love this and I love that you brought that up and shared that because um, I, as, as, as a quick aside, I should say that frogs are actually amphibians, not reptiles. And my son, who is pale as a, as a, um, uh, as a evolutionary biologist, uh, geophysicist, uh, he's kind of got a mix of things going on now, but, but also a herpetologist and his great passion is, is reptiles and amphibians. And he's out with me now in Arizona, driving the desert roads at night, you know, during the pandemic, he's uh, sheltering here with me. But anyway, um, he is a great, really is a great passion as amphibians and especially, um, uh, ancient amphibians so you know, from the fossil record he, he loves the ideas of salamanders six feet long and stuff you know kind of romantic. like some guys are with dinosaurs he's, he's with that so you know I, I think this is a beautiful this ties in so well with a lot of things we've been talking about because um, you know we're, we're doing this on a video conference so we can see each other and behind me you know is a, I'm, I'm sitting in my in my home office and in my in my house but you know a, a couple doors down the hall is a room full of, uh, of of reptiles and I go in there and I do what you did with that frog I do many times a day every day mm-hmm. I sit you know I have a little a skink as a pet I sit with him in my hand I have a you know they're, they're mostly turtles but you know I, I'll go and I'll talk to the turtles and I'll bring them something special to eat I'll pick one up and hold them in my hand and give them a little worm or something you know um, and and that quiet time you know away from the digital artificial world that is sometimes for some of us i mean i'm i'm lucky and i know you are too we live in places where we can be outside and go and take a hike even during the pandemic we can still get out and engage nature and stuff at the moment we're having a heat wave it's it's like 108 something outside right now it's not too attractive to go out but generally speaking you know we have access to nature but for a lot of people you know these these animals we call them pets but you know what is a pet really but it's it's satisfying some desire to repair the damage we did in our divorce from nature and to reunite with things that are beyond us that we didn't make up everything else is things we made even books which i love so much right that that's just something man-made but there is much finer and greater and larger available and most people do not sadly avail themselves about that we get caught in our little rabbit warrens of our lives and we, we lose track of who and what we are and what we're a part of and so when we have experiences like you know holding a turtle in your hand and I, i'm trying i got some very rare asian ones that are, are extinct in the wild actually mm. and i them through my contacts and zoos and friends you know because i've had for for so many years i've been in, into that and you know there are some things i have that there might be like a couple of hundred of them left alive on planet earth I mean, that's it anywhere, complete total number. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying desperately to get them to breed because I want you know, and we're having some success with that. So, you know, being engaged with something like that is so essential to, to life and to understanding, you know, who and what we are. I'm sad that more people don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. When, when I see kids, you know, we're going to be a couple of grumpy old men here for a minute, but when you see kids with, you know, looking at cartoons about nature on their iPad when right outside the door there's actual nature. Uh, it's it's heartbreaking, um, and not in a not in a judgmental way. Just they're missing so much. The idea of 
you know, I'm sure you and I both heard our parents say, why don't you, well, maybe not in Manhattan, but in Pennsylvania, go outside and play. You know, you were right across from the park. You could go hang out in the park, I guess. Um, but the idea of just go out and play, find something to do, climb a tree, you know, throw a stick, wade in the stream, like those things um, that are lost. I don't understand how the brain is developing now. It's it's um, very troubling. So, you know, on the subject of being grumpy old men, you know, uh, two things came up when you said that to me. One, one is that I, I suppose it's a cliche that every generation, you know, rolls its eyes about the one after and, and says this and that. And the other thing I remember my my parents, you know, uh, shutting off the TV and, and when Elvis was on, uh, on uh, Ed Sullivan. Sullivan and gyrating his hips. You know? <laughs> but, so, so, you know, but, but at the same time, there, there is in this case, and again, I say this knowing that, you know, younger people may listen and roll their eyes uh, as I say it, but there is some, uh, there is objective stuff going on and, and the change, the rate of change is increasing exponentially. So it isn't fair to say that, you know, things that were basically as they were for a few hundred years in Western culture, and, and maybe my, uh, our, our parents' generation was the last generation that still had a toehold in that, on that stable platform. But, you know, now that is gone. And I think that it, there is an obje- it is objectively true, not a matter of culture, not a matter of appreciation, not a matter of taste, not a matter of upbringing, not a matter of religion, although that's a question, but it, there's a, it is objectively true that what is being done in and to the world now stands apart from, uh, you know, well, you're just an old guy talking about it. I mean, you know, we're, we are seeing the destruction of our home in very, very objective ways that don't have anything to do with that it's Chris or Monk's opinion, right? This is, this is not that. This is something else. So, you know, the the other thing that came to me, of course, is that, you know, this is very nuanced relationship between discernment and judgment, something I'm sure you've studied a lot. And, you know, when we say that um, we discern that the kid is, you know, watching, looking at nature cartoons on his iPhone or whatever, and right outside there is nature, um, and we discern that and we say, well, you know, without judgment, I'm just looking at that. But, but I think that if that phenomenon, and I believe it is, if it is coupled with wanton destruction, then we are entitled to make a judgment, even if only in the interests of our survival. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think there's also the angle of if, if someone is sitting down and eating a strawberry flavored candy when there's a bowl of strawberries on the table, there's something very obvious there, right? Why would you, you're being trained to want the artificial replacement for the real thing. And as you suggested, maybe the reason for that is that the real thing is being destroyed and this will make it easier. 
That and the fact that the artificial replacement makes somebody a dollar. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, we this is a this is a whole sort of you know global um, capitalist conspiracy, uh, you know, industrial com- subject. We have another conversation about, and I know you have had conversations about that. So you know, knowing knowing that all this is going on, if you if you say, and and again, maybe this is my failing as a monk. Uh, maybe it has been suggested by my detractors that this is an area in which I, I need to do some work. Um, and, and maybe they're right. I'm not sure. Um, but if you suggest, you know, that, that a judgment might accompany that observation, knowing what you know about the full thing that's going on, um, I, I think of the Taoist exhortation to you do what must be done and then you move on. So in this case, if guys like us see what, what we see, what you've just described, then a corollary is that we also see what must be done. Something must be done to correct that, because that's the, you know, the um, manifestation of a certain force or momentum that, you know, we, we may think is, is negative. So we want to take, you know, balance in and yang, and we want to bring um, an opposing force to that. And that's what we need to do. So we say, listen, you know, by the way, try the strawberry. It's actually yeah. a lot better than the candy. It also won't rot your teeth and it also doesn't do this, that, and the other thing. It won't make you a, a you know, an obese middle-aged diabetic if you keep eating it and all the rest, right? And apply that lesson to the rest of your life. Uh, pornography is not sex, right? Exactly. I, that occurred to me too when you talked about the strawberry. That was the first thing I thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you get used to the artificial and then the real strawberry, you don't, you can't you can't taste it anymore it's a it's a strange thing listen we've been going for over an hour here and uh it's been fun it has been fun and i feel like there's so much more to talk about uh if you're willing i'd love to do it again sometime and maybe we can even do it in the same room and you can show me a turtle or two or something i would be so happy i I hope you will come my way as we have discussed thank you yeah i'd like to there there are other people in that part of the world that I love and I'd love to, uh, you know, come visit you when I'm down there. I uh, hope you will do so. As soon as the world allows it. And thank you for the pleasure and honor of being with you today. Thank you. Is there a place that uh, people can go to find your books and your your film work or your teachings? Do you have a... So, yeah, the, the easiest thing is just go right to my website, uh, which is monkyunro.com. It's spelled Y-U-N-R-O-U.com. But there's also an easier way because I have an alternate uh, URL which lands the same place, which is Play Tai Chi. So play the game like P-L-A-Y and then Tai Chi, T-A-I-C-H-I. If you just go online and you do playtaichi.com, you'll also come to me. Okay, fantastic. And there's all, all right. kinds of Google stuff around me, too, obviously. Great. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, it took us three swings to hit this one, but I, <laughs> I think we got a solid double on this. Uh, for, for me, it was very much worth it. I appreciate it so much, Chris. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, Mom. Uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. 
<laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't want to give the end away, but we're going to die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a say when everyone we've ever known is headed for a headstone i don't want to give the end away but we're gonna die one day we're gonna die one day we're gonna die one day so baby what's a big deal if you want to be you want to feel spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms and if we must go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground 